from Kurtco Media. Little did we know that we were actually becoming a community. This is a word that we would find out about 30 years later. We're a community. When somebody would call, it's like-minded. We could speak the language. We were becoming a community through this newsletter. That was Frank Bandarano, our guest today on Cars That Matter. This is Cars That Matter. This is Robert Ross with another episode of Cars That Matter. I'd like to welcome my guest, Frank Mandarano. Frank, welcome. Thank you, Robert. Good to be here. We're a little bit separated. I'm in Los Angeles, and you're up in beautiful Mercer Island, Washington, which I know you've called home for about 50 years now. I'm very envious, and it's a great place to be for a car collector, too. It's a small island with a moat around it, but yet we're eight minutes from downtown Seattle, and we're eight minutes from downtown Bellevue. So it's like living in Switzerland, but at the same time, having access to the urban areas. To set our stage, I'd like to introduce you to our audience. Frank is a name that most guys and gals in the Italian car community know pretty well. Frank, you founded the Maserati Club. You founded MIE, which is Maserati Information Exchange, but most people know it as sort of the clearinghouse for Maserati parts and restoration back in the 80s and early 90s. You founded Concorso Italiano. You currently run the Car Guy Tour Italia. You've got such a portfolio of accomplishments and interests, I thought we'd basically narrow things down for this conversation. And this conversation should be all about Maserati. What a mark. You probably know that like the back of your hand. In 28 years, I was playing with Maseratis, and it was a lot of fun from the very beginning. Well, I still do. I still own a Vignelli Spider. That's an important car, boy. And what a beauty and what a rare piece of work that is. Where do you even start? You talk about the House of the Trident. You're like the sixth Maserati brother, the missing Maserati brother. If they'd had a younger brother, you would have been one of them. Like a lot of stories and a lot of turn of events, it starts with a woman and a kiss. It wasn't my kiss. It was a good friend of mine here on Mercer Island back in 1970. I'd recently gotten out of the military and a good friend of mine here on Mercer Island married a very affluent French girl. They were both very young in their 20s. The wedding was going to take place in France, in the south of France, in Saint-Jean-Cap-Ferrat, which is the most exclusive area of the French Riviera. 26 people from Mercer Island and around flew over to France for this wedding. Some people compared this wedding to the Teresa Nixon wedding. I mean, it was a very lavish affair. For example, the reception was held at the Rothschild Mansion. It was incredible. Myself and two other guys, and the one guy's lady friend, there were four of us, we were of the same age, and we were all three car guys. So we were going to go to this wedding, and we were going to go over early, and we were going to tour France and Italy and Austria and whatnot and rent a Peugeot, rent a car, and drive through Italy. We thought, well, heck, when we're in Italy, why don't we go to the Ferrari and the Maserati factory? And we said, well, how do we get in there? Gee, how's that going to work? And this, of course, was the first time I'd ever been to Italy. So I had a good friend of mine who had a very prestigious auto shop, classic car repair shop here in Seattle, Tom Sumner. I'd stop over to Tom's a couple times a week and see what he was working on and whatnot. He was a Maserati fan. I said, yeah, we're going to go to Italy and we want to get into the Maserati factory and got any ideas. And he said, well, listen, I have a list of parts that I need for this Mistral that I'm working on. So why don't you take this list of parts to the Maserati factory and tell them you want to get these parts and then maybe they'll give you a tour of the factory. Great idea. We went off to Italy. Remember, there's no cell phones. There's no internet. There's no nothing in 1970. And we showed up at the Maserati factory and I remember it just like it was yesterday. We said, we got these parts and we'd like to inquire about it. Oh, well, absolutely. 
Lee, we'll get these. We'll take you over to the parts department and they'll fill the order and send them off to Mr. Tom in Seattle. And by the way, can we get a tour? Oh, sure, sure. Yeah. And so they gave us a tour. That's when I became infected with the Maserati bug <laughs> walking through that factory and seeing these guys milling crankshafts out of solid billet steel and watching them assemble these cars on a sideways assembly line. At the time, they were making the Indy and they were making the last of the Ghiblis were coming out in 1970. They were getting geared up for the Bora. And in fact, they took us into this one shop and he pointed up on a hoist and he says, that's the first Bora. And I looked up there and it had not been painted yet. It was body and white. And I looked up on this lift and there was this wild look thing. It was incredible to see. And after that, we were really hopped up and we went off to Marinello and lo and behold, and it was just extremely impressive to do that. So we meandered back up through Austria and then back through Germany and into France, back down to the south of France to the Côte d'Azur and attended the wedding. And then after the wedding, we flew home. So it started with a kiss. That is quite an introduction to, as you say, a lifelong love affair. A Maserati is a different kind of car. You look at Italian automotive history and obviously there are some marks that are even older than Maserati. Fiat and Alfa Romeo, Lancia, but not by much. But all these cars go back to the turn of the last century. Maserati, too, is an old one, but it's always stood apart from the young upstarts like Ferrari, which was 1947, or Lamborghini, which was 1963. I mean, Maserati's really an old, old storied brand, and they've always been different. They have a different reputation. They have almost a different aura about them. And they always attracted a different owner. I always thought of Maseratis as attracting a gentleman, if you will, not so much a person who might be more interested in showing off. You're exactly right. You're spot on. One would be the gentleman and the other one would be the playboy. And one is flashy, aggressive, high revs, look at me, hear me. And the other is elegant, reserved, very high quality. And the man that has already arrived many perhaps generations ago. They're the two kind of cars, completely different. And I can tell you from experience, I own a Daytona Spider now, as well as my Vignelli Spider, and the two are completely different. It's just amazing the difference. One is easy for the seashore, for the countryside, that would be the Vignelli Spider. Inline six, great sound, very smooth, gentle car. The Daytona, on the other hand, is for the Autostrada. It's aggressive, it makes great noise, and it's very fast. The only thing they're lacking is ZF power steering, which my car had installed in 1979 in Italy. With the addition of ZF power steering, the Daytona is transformed into an incredible road car and performance car. But the two are diametrically different, completely different cars. And when you think about it, Frank, they're separated by less than a decade. In many ways, you've got two completely different schools of thought. I mean, the Vinali body on your Spider was a real piece of art from what I'd call the golden age of coach building. It's one of Michelotti's finest. Giovanni Michelotti penned the Vignali Spider. He penned so many cars that we don't even know about because Michelotti was a freelancer. He was a hired gun. He was Paladin. When Pina Farina had too many jobs on the books, they'd call up Michelotti and they'd say, can you come over here and take a couple of these off of our hands? And he'd take them and do them. He would do them for other design companies, for Bertoni, for Pina Farina, for Frua. He would do designs for these guys on the side, but he never really got his name put on those cars. Not many people know that he designed the TR4. The Triumph TR4 is a Michelotti design. You know, it's funny. You look at his designs and I've always 
always thought that there's just something about those very delicate, gentle fender lines and some of the edges of the top portions of the fenders on all his cars where you can really see a Michelotti touch. But certainly the Finale Spider is one of the classics, and that's a rare car too. How many of those they make? They only made plus or minus 239, something like that. That's definitely some rare air. Yeah, and I've got just a great one. I drove it 1,200 miles in six days with 20 other guys from Seattle over to Idaho and into Montana and back. And it just ran like a Swiss watch. Just a great car. That's fantastic. You know, I want to make one comment about Alfieri Maserati and his brothers. There's certain people in the car industry, like Bugatti. Bugatti was a designer, an engineer. He was an incredible man. But he can't be compared with Ferrari. Ferrari was a salesman. Ferrari hired people to do his engines. He hired drivers to drive his cars. He hired designers to do the design work. So he was really an orchestrator and good at what he did. A megalomaniacal conductor. He was the Toscanini of the automotive world. But the Maserati brothers were true engineers and innovators. And racers too. And racers too. And they were followed by another great man, Lancia. Right. Vincenzo Lancia was another great engineer and man and founder. And the heir to that mentality, to those kinds of people, is Pagani. Pagani is the natural heir to Bugatti and the Maserati brothers. He's a man that designs his own work, engineers the cars, just an amazing individual. Not everybody who founded car companies can say that. Typically, they were orchestrators, not necessarily innovators of just that. That's a really brilliant point and a fine point, too, that really calls these special personalities out as being really the rare gems. The idea of a renaissance man, as it were, in the world of the automobile is a very rare occurrence. It is rare. And the Maserati brothers, when they ran out of money, which they always did, they <laughs> sold off the company to Orsi, who again was an industrialist. Right. Kind of like Ford being sold to Bill Gates. He's not a car guy, but he's got the money. So the Orsi took over Maserati, but the engineering staff that was still there was Signor Alfieri, Giulio Alfieri. He carried on the work and the vision of the Maserati brothers. That's right. And they, of course, went on to found Oscar. They left the company after a 10-year contract. On the day the contract was up, they left. I guess they didn't enjoy being part of a bureaucracy and they used to their hands-on. But Alfieri carried on, and you can see where Alfieri was more or less the father of that 3500 GT. That's right. So Alfieri, in my opinion, one of his greatest achievements, besides the birdcage, was the 250F. The engineering department was made of perhaps three guys, maybe five at the most, and these guys were young. Much like the youngsters that went on to create the first Lamborghinis. It was 20-somethings that really created the brilliant push forward in terms of engineering and design. And I guess what our audience should know is that Maserati really was not a maker of road cars. Oh, they made a few after the war, but for the most part, it was all about racing. They were all about racing. So you talk about this 250F and the 300s and the 450s. Those were race cars. They were race cars. And Alfieri built that 250F and Fonjo drove it. And it was perhaps the greatest race in history was when Fonjo won. 1957. Yeah, the Nürburgring. And Mr. Alfieri was a personal friend of mine. And in fact, he was our first guest at Concorso Italiano in 1991. We flew him and his wife over, and he was honored at Concorso Italiano along with Tom Charta. And Alfieri told me this story personally. He said that the win at the Nürburgring was not a result of the car, but of the man. It was a testimony to the man, Fonjo. And he said after the race, they brought that 250F back to the factory. And the next day, Fonjo came to the factory, and he met with Giulio Alfieri. And Mr. Alfieri took Fonjo's hand, and he says, come with me, come with me. And he took him back in the factory, and he showed him the car and he said look at this 
The complete suspension was blocked solid. All the bushings had frozen. What Mr. Alfieri said, what Julio said was that this man literally drove this car to the absolute end of its life. It was completely blocked. Everything was completely used and it couldn't be used. One more kilometer, it couldn't go. That is a fantastic story and a little bit of insight that certainly I've never heard and that most people will never get to hear. From that 250F during that same period, 57, they had the 3500 GT on the drawing board. And Touring of Milan was coming up with the coachwork. And that engine was not the same engine, but the architecture was similar, but it'd been detuned with a chain instead of gears. Alfieri took that engine and made the next generation, which had a wet sump and was chain driven and put it in the 3500 GT. At the time, he told me he was spending at least two weeks a month in the UK and in Germany. And what he was doing was he was going to all the vendors of Jaguar and sourcing parts. And so he was sourcing the rear end. He was sourcing the transmission from ZF. Yeah, the rear end was a Salisbury, right? Salisbury, British front suspension, Girling brakes, Smith's instruments. And eventually that diabolical Lucas fuel injection. <laughs> eventually, yes. In my opinion, one of his great mistakes. But at the time, it was ahead of its time. That's right. It was. So he came up with the 3500 GT, which turned out to be very successful. That 3500, it's kind of like Rodney Dangerfield. It just doesn't get the respect that <laughs> it deserved. It was Maserati's first series production car. They sold a pretty good number of them. It lasted for a long time in the market, and it really was an impeccable piece. It really is. I'm amazed that it hasn't achieved a greater status in the collector car market. One of the reasons is that they languished for so long and were in poor condition, so they didn't sell for very much money. When they were restored, they weren't restored correctly, and so the market wasn't very kind to them. But now they're being restored completely and correctly, and they're coming back. I always thought that the seminal moment from a collector's point of view was when they made the decision to use the inline six instead of a V12. I would have loved to have been in that meeting when they decided an inline six instead of the V12. From a collector point of view, I think that made all the difference in the world. If you had a 12-cylinder in that 3500 and in that Vignale Spider or in the Mr. Alpha Coupe and Spider, I think that you'd see the prices be skyrocketing. It absolutely quadrupled the price of what they are now. I think so, but we have what we have, and they're great cars for what they are. Certainly, they had a litany of wonderful inline sixes that came after the 3500, both the Coupe and your Irvinali Spider. The Mistral, of course, was one of the great Frua designs. And I look at a Mistral and I say to myself, car still looks modern and still looks good. Of course, that was the last of the inline sixes of theirs. You've owned those and certainly you've restored them. I've restored plenty of them and I own plenty of them. In fact, I had a Mistral Spider number 057 that drove thousands of miles up and down the West Coast. And my wife and I, when we were younger, we would camp out. When you're young, you can do those things. And what about the Sebring? I haven't owned Sebrings. I've restored several of them and I've sold many of them. They're built quite well because they're a Vignelli bodied car, probably done by Michelotti. These Maseratis are funny because just when you think you don't like a particular model, and then one comes in that's really nice and you take it for a drive, you know, and you go, hey, these are nice. And suddenly you're a convert. I've had some Series 2 Sebrings. These are spectacular cars. If you get one that's sorted out and really put together well, or it's a very original running well, you can change your mind. That's really funny. For example, the Indy. A lot of people don't particularly care for the Indy because it's trying to be a Ghibli with two extra seats. But I'm telling you, of the cars I restored, and we restored or performed major maintenance on over 400 Maseratis. 
But I'd get an Indian there and you start taking it apart. My God, it's really built well. When you open up the rear hatch, it's all stainless steel lined. Not to pick on Ferrari, but you wouldn't see that on a Ferrari. Well, that's interesting about the Indian because it is kind of the one overshadowed by the Ghibli, which might be the most gorgeous Maserati ever made. I had a Ghibli Spider. It was sold new by Marv Tonkin. Everybody knows Ron Tonkin, but not many people know his brother Marv Tonkin. And Marv was a car dealer down in Portland as well as Ron. Oh. Marv was a Maserati guy. He had the Maserati franchise in the 70s. And Ron had the Ferrari franchise. I had that Ghibli Spider for, I don't know, 15 or 18 years. It was an incredible car. I remember driving this car up to Vancouver, BC with the fitted hardtop on it in the blowing snow. It must have been in February. Going up to Vancouver with the windshield wipers going and the heater on and driving the Ghibli Spider. I mean, when I bought it, it had 15,000 original miles on it. And when I sold it, it had 39,000 miles. Got some good use out of that. I drive my cars. Now, was that a 4.7 or a 4.9? 4.7. Five-speed air conditioning, power steering. It was the perfect car. The only knock I have on it is it was too civilized. <laughs> I've heard that complaint about Ghibli's. It never broke. It was always in good taste, and it always ran and started, and the air conditioning always worked. And you couldn't call it sporty. It wasn't a sporty car. It was a GT car. It was a grand touring car, and it just worked great. Mm -hmm. One of the biggest mistakes of my life, I ended up selling that car to buy a new Maserati 4200 GT, the new Spider. I had a Grand Sport, which came out in 2006 at the end of that era. But the first ones, the 4200s, those were gorgeous cars. I bought one of the first in the state of Washington, and I sold my Ghibli Spider to buy it. Biggest mistake of my life. And it went to Japan. However, my son has a first rider refusal to buy it back. So I have a legal document that says, if you're ever going to sell this, you got to call up Tony Mandarano and offer it to him at whatever price you get for it. So I'm hoping that one day Tony or I get a call and I'll get that car back one of these days. Well, that would be a great homecoming because that is a very special car. We're going to take a short break, but we'll be right back. Welcome to Life Done Better. Listen to the weekly episodes where supermodel and health coach Jill DeYoung talks to some of the world's most inspiring women in health and wellness. It's the place for all the unicorns who strive to create a life on their own terms. Join us to explore, discover, and create a life done better together. Listen and subscribe from Kurt Co. Media, media for your mind. Welcome back to Cars That Matter. Frank, tell us about MIE, because that was a big, important part of any Maserati owner's life back in the day. So we got back from Europe, and I'm all hopped up on Italian cars and Maseratis, and I'm coming home to Mercer Island, and I drive down through the village, and I'm going past the Shell gas station, and I see something red in back of the Shell's gas station, and I pull in, and it's a 3500 GT with wire wheels. I asked the guy what's going on with the car, and he says, yeah, it's owned by a local doctor, and do you think he wants to sell it? He says, yeah, I know he wants to sell it. So long story short, I ended up buying the car. In a strange coincidence, I met my future wife at the ladies' night at the local bar in Bellevue. And the next day, I invited her out to lunch, and I took the 3500 GT showing off. And I pick her up for lunch, and she's impressed, and I'm impressed, and everything's going great. And I drop her back off at her work, and then I come back to Mercer Island. As I'm coming across the floating bridge, I hear what sounds like a diesel. The main bearings went out on the Maserati. The old Luke 
Lucas fuel injection puked gas into the oil. Suddenly you go from having 10 quarts to 12 to 13 quarts and thins out the oil and you spin the rod bearings. And so the car went in the shop. It was there for a year. It's amazing how some of these old cars can have a birthday in a shop, isn't it? Well, I ended up taking it to my friend Tom Sumner and he made it happen. And it was in nine months, a year it was done and done right. Well, during this period, I was looking for parts and Tom would say, I need some main bearings. I need some gaskets and I need this and I need that. Like an idiot, I was calling up Napa and saying, do you have any main bearings for a Maserati? And they said, no, you're crazy. I eventually ended up with Bob Grossman in New York who had parts and I got my car fixed. And I thought to myself, there must be other Maserati owners in the same position. There must be guys out there looking for parts and information and they can't find anything. For the hell of it, I came up with this Maserati information exchange and ran an ad in Road and Track. Those little ads in the back that everybody used to read back then, they were priceless. Exactly. And it said, Maserati Information Exchange, newsletter, 25 bucks a year. The first month, two guys sent me 25 bucks. And the second month, another three guys sent me 25 bucks. And then the next month, another four guys. And then my future wife, she could type really well. And at the time, I couldn't. We'd type up this newsletter and we'd Xerox copy articles and things. And we had a little four or five page newsletter. We'd search Hemmings and we'd search Road and Track and Competition Press for Maserati cars for sale. And we'd put them in the newsletter. So you didn't have to buy all these other magazines. You could just get our newsletter. And it was like a consolidation of parts and cars that were everywhere around. At the end of the year, we had like 40, 50 members. And at the end of two years, we had another 40, 50 members and it just slowly started growing. And then we began selling manuals, parts manuals. And we'd go out to the copy company and we'd photocopy manuals and we'd go next door to the Pizza Hut and collate them and order a pizza. And we were selling manuals for 20 bucks, 25 bucks. And people were sending us checks. That was priceless information back then. And you think about it for a minute, Frank. And back then a guy had to work really really hard to own an exotic car. It took a lot of work. It took networking. It took all the kinds of stuff that today we take for granted. Little did we know that we were actually becoming a community. This is a word that we would find out about 30 years later. We're a community. When somebody would call, it's like-minded. We could speak the language. You have a Maserati. Oh, great. I've got one. Where are you? We were becoming a community through this newsletter. So one day I'm driving to work and I hear this ad and the ad says, just send us your credit card. And we'll send it right out to you. And I thought to myself, credit card? Oh, what a good idea. Prior to that, people were sending us checks and then we'd send the manuals. Now the guy called and says, I need a Bora manual, a owner's manual, and parts manual. And I said, yeah, we can send it out to you today. Give me your credit card number and we'll send it out today. <laughs> so they'd give us credit card number and we'd send the manual. It doubled our business in one day. And then the guy would say, well, do you have any windshield wipers? You got any parts? The light bulb went off. I went down to Tacoma, Washington. ABC Hawkins Pontiac was the last known Maserati distributor. Now, Maserati didn't have dealers in those days. They had what's called distributors. A distributor would be in like three states. And we bought out all their spare parts. In that purchase was a little booklet. It was a booklet that if you're anywhere in the world and you need service for your Maserati, here's your local distributor. And it showed all the distributors in the US. There was about seven of them. And it showed all the distributors in Europe and all the distributors in Italy and France, Thailand. And so I started writing letters to these distributors and asking them if they wanted to sell their spare parts. Now, remember, this was 76. 
Maserati had left the U.S. market in the early 70s. That's right. If you wanted a Merrick or a Bora or whatnot or a Camsine, you had to get it from overseas. They'd gone into bankruptcy in 1975, and Di Tommaso had bought them out of bankruptcy. But the production was stopped for a few months, and the cars were just trickling out. So nobody wanted anything to do with Maserati, especially the old cars. We were able to buy the German distributor Otto Koenig in Munich container load of parts. These are all pre-70 parts. These are all 35 Mistral, Bora, Campson, Mirac, what we call the classic GT car parts. We bought the Spanish distributor in Auto Paris in Barcelona. We bought the French distributor out of Paris. We bought the UK distributor, two containers of parts. We bought a Saudi Arabian distributor, and we were buying these parts 20 cents on the dollar. In the U.S., we bought the New York distributor. We bought the Texas distributor. We bought we bought Cavalli in San Francisco. The final purchase was Maserati Automobiles in Baltimore, the USA distributor from 1975, 76 through 1990. They got out in 1990. We bought them in December 7th, 1994. And that deal was done between Mr. DiTomaso, his attorney, and our attorney. It was touching go. There were several times the deal was off. And then we just said, fine, the deal's off because we want everything. He didn't want to give us this. And he didn't want to give us that. Typical Di Tommaso nitpicking at you. I figured out that my claim to fame has nothing to do with Concorso Italiano or Maserati. It has everything to do with I'm the only guy and I challenge anybody to prove me wrong. I'm the only guy to ever do business with Di Tommaso who did not get <laughs> Carol Shelby once told me at Concorso Italiano, and I was talking to him about Di Tommaso, and he says, the son of a bitch still owes me $100,000. <laughs> well, they can be duking it out upstairs or down there or wherever they are right now, because those two were definitely tough. So that's how we ended up with all these parts. And we moved into a larger facility, a 16,000 square foot facility, and we inventoried all these parts. If anybody's been to my old MIE, warehouse and shop, they'll remember that it was as clean as a hospital. And every part was marked with block letters on the shelf, in the right category, in the right place, and nothing was on the floors. Kind of sounds like a dream job for me. I had four parts guys receiving calls and a guy that shipping and receiving, packing parts and sent them out. And I thought, well, shit, I got all the parts. Why don't I restore cars? And so I hired some mechanics. It took a long time to end up. But we finally ended up with four mechanical technicians who were great. Three upholstery people that worked with us. A sheet metal guy from New Zealand who'd come up for six months and knock everything out and go back home. A mud guy that just did the bodywork and the mudding and the blocking. And a guy that did nothing but disassemble and assemble. And so we were restoring cars and servicing cars and bringing them in and bringing them out up until the point where the market crashed in 1990. Talk about a roller coaster moment. A $200,000 car became a $50,000 car overnight. The majority of our core business was buying and selling cars. That was where you really made good money. And in fact, the last two years of the restoration business, we were only working on our own cars. I'd gotten rid of the customers because the customers were a hassle. We had a saying, if it wasn't for those customers, you could really get something done. But the biggest difference was the profit. I'll never forget. I'd purchased a Mistral Spider for something like 50 grand, 70 grand. And I brought it into the shop and I said, yeah, throw some wire wheels on it. Let's tune it. And the guy said, needs a new exhaust. Okay, throw a new ANS exhaust on it. Put some new wire wheels on it. While you're at it, let's do the brakes and let's service it. Adjust the valves, flush the brakes, flush the cooling system, put a new convertible top on it. And oh, what the hell, let's re-leather it. We didn't paint it. We just buffed it. Kind of a freshened up, so to speak. Detailed engine compartment. 
and I sold it for like $140,000. Of course, the market was going up, right? And so I'm sitting at my desk. I had computer printouts at that time. The technicians, when they worked on the car, at the end of every day, they would write up 3.5 hours of R&R breaks, do this, do that. They keep track of everything they did. Those worksheets would go to my secretary and then she'd type them. And there'd be three copies. It'd be a white, a yellow, and a pink. And the pink would go in the file and the white would go to the customer and the other one would go in a shop file. I paid my guys at the time. I paid them about $25, $27 per hour, which was a lot of money. I was charging $57 an hour per technician hour. I was paying my techs about $27 an hour, including their salary, the benefits, vacation time, insurance. You needed to find your profit in the profit on that car by the time it was done. Yeah. So I'm looking and it cuts to the bottom line and it shows how much profit per hour. It was $129 an hour per technician after I factored in the sale. And I went, holy crap, what am I doing working on customers' cars? From that moment on, we just started working on our own cars. That worked good up until the point where January 1990, when the market fell apart. And at that time, I was holding some cars. And let me tell you, the key in a down market is to drop your price dramatically at first and just be done with it. Take your loss quickly. Because I had a Ghibli Spider, and I think at the time they were $240,000, $250,000. So I put mine out there at $220,000. Other guys had their cars for $200,000. Then I dropped the price to $180,000. Other guys are out there at $160,000. I was on my knees thanking God the day the guy paid me $120,000 for that Ghibli Spider. I was into for 240. And of course, today those cars were up above a million for a while. And of course, now it's softer again, but still, I guess a good Ghibli Spider is probably worth 800 and change. You're exactly right. You're spot on. So, about the time of 1990, the car market was falling apart, and then the Concorso was starting to grow and have legs. But then we just focused on parts. We closed down the shop. I laid everybody off. On the surface, that sounds really bad, but they all took a month off because these were top notch technicians and they had two or three job offers. They could go anywhere. They took a month off and then they went to work someplace else. Boy, you think about those parts that you had back then, they were just parts. But today that stuff is unobtainium. Stainless window trim for a 3,500. Little grills and doodads and surrounds and things for some of those cars. What we did is we never threw out the last part or we never sold the last part. We had these boards, these sheets of plywood that were painted gray, and we had every water pump on the board disassembled. So we had the original water pump, the original seal, the original bearings, the original gaskets. So we never threw out the last of any original part. We kept it so you could reverse engineer it. And of course, today you can do that easily, but you need the original part to work with. You need the original part, and you can't reproduce a reproduced part. So we were reproducing. We had the complete market. We were really the only ones in North America, really. We started reproducing gaskets. We reproduced all the gaskets. We reproduced valves in Argentina. We reproduced glass in Italy. We went to Elring in Germany, and we bought their complete stock of V8 head gaskets. I said, how many do you have left? And they sent me a printout. And it was something like 1,200 gaskets. I said, we'll take them all. I went to ZF in Frederikshafen, and I went in and talked to him. I said, I'd like to talk to you about buying your old S517 parts from the 3500 and the Mistral. And they said, if you'd have been here last week, you could have had them. We threw it all out. They threw it all out. Unbelievable. They said a dump truck load of 3500 GT S517 parts. I was just sick. Amazing. We have to take a quick break, but we'll be back in just a moment. A Moment of Your Time, a new podcast from Kurt Co. Media. Currently 21 years old. 
And today, I felt like I'm magic extended from her fingertips down to the you base of my spine. You have to take care spine. of yourself because the world needs you and Trust your me, voice. Trust me, every do-gooder that asked about me was ready to spit on my dream. Her fingers were facing me. You can feel like your purpose and your worth is really being it's questioned. It's going to stop me from playing the piano. She buys walkie-talkies. Wonders to whom she should give the second device. Cats don't love humans. We never did. We never will. We just find the one. The beauty of cool. rock climbing is that you can only focus on what's right in life. And so our American life begins. We may need to stay apart, but let's create together. Available on all podcast platforms. Submit your piece at kirkcocom slash a moment of your time. Welcome back to Cars That Matter. But let's pick it up, Frank. These really were just old used cars at a certain point in time, right before they started to get collectible. And thanks to guys like you and the enthusiasts that kind of support the mark, there have been a number of old cars that were preserved. Of course, today it's a whole different story. I mean, whatever vagaries we're seeing in the market due to the current pandemic and some of the softening that we've seen over the last couple of years, the classic car market is still a pretty sound market. And these cars now are all considered very, very desirable. The top quality cars will remain top quality and always be desirable. The lesser known cars that the market hasn't treated well will kind of be there. They'll just kind of limp along. You could put the Mistral Coupe into that category and the Indy and the Mexico. Campsons are drawing a certain attention. 3500s are drawing a certain attention. Certainly the 3500 Spider, anything with the top down is going to do well if you're going to predict the market. What you want is limited production and you want top quality. I think those kind of cars will always do well. But you shouldn't buy the car because you think you're going to make money on it. You should buy the car and enjoy it for what it is because you never know uh, the next day you're dead. You got to live life every day. If money is not the object, then you want a Ghibli Spider 4.9, the Mistral Spider 4 liter, not many of them made. But the Vignali Spider is hard to beat. That's such a sweet car. Now, your car is restored to original specification. Yes. The day it left the factory, it was ordered by a woman out of Rome, and her husband owned a 5000 GT, and she ordered it in February 24th, and it wasn't delivered until May 5th, I think. It took three months to build. She ordered it just perfect. She got five-speed from the factory, wire wheels, carburetors, cognac leather with what you and I would call British racing green. The Italians call it verde scuro. And I think only three 3500s were painted that dark green. Yeah, I'm very fortunate. I feel almost vindicated for selling my Ghibli Spider. <laughs> but I'm good with just two cars. I'm good with the Daytona and the Vignali Spider. At one time, I had 15 Maseratis and I think about uh, six or seven prototypes. Well, that's interesting you'd mentioned that because Maserati, for all the ballyhoo of the great Ferrari portfolio with all their prototypical cars and their small production runs, Maserati produced some of the most beautiful prototypes and some of the most interesting cars throughout the 50s and 60s. I mean, some really wild stuff. The Mexico I owned, number 001, a Frua prototype. And what was really unique about it, in addition to it being a prototype and having a 001 serial number, was it had the first production V8 engine in it. When the Italian engineers came to my shop and he put a flashlight down and looked at the engine number, he was blown away. He says, uno, uno. And it's the number one. It's the first production engine. It was unbelievable. And also the Bertoni prototype by Franco Scaglioni. He did the Alpha Bats, yeah. Yes. And the first Lamborghini GTV, the one that was so wild and woolly that nobody wanted it. He's one of my favorite designers. Scaglioni was wild. I understand he was quite a strange character too. Mr. Bertoni said when I was talking to him about Franco Scaglioni, he said he was impossible. Scaglioni was impossible to do anything with. Mr. Bertoni's claim to fame was he was an orchestrator. He was a grand 
orchestrator. He didn't design any cars, but he could put people together. He could attract the right talent. And he attracted Gandini, and he attracted Giugiaro. Scaglioni worked for Bertoni. He said he would show up in the morning in a limousine with two women on his arm wearing a tuxedo and half drunk. He'd say, are you going to work today? And he'd say, I don't know, maybe. And he'd come in and he'd do some work, but he just was this amazing creator. Well, when you think about some of the most flamboyant cars from the era, they certainly have his signature on them. And then you look at the work of Giorgetto Giugiaro and then the younger Marcello Gandini, and you realize how sober they were despite some of their experimental designs. But Franco Scaglione was an innovator, a leader. He came before them, and I think it's easy to look at the next table at the restaurant and see what kind of napkin they're drawing on and then take that another step further. That's a good analogy because he really was the guy that kind of defined the look of the fins and the flares and stuff that really defined the look of cars for a decade and a half. When you think about the history of Maserati, clearly their resurgence in the market, which started in the mid-2000s with the reintroduced Quattroporte and then the new Ghibli, which is a Ghibli only in name, but it's nonetheless a very popular car. Then their Gran Turismo, and now, of course, with their MC20, they've got a real sports car again. And it's totally engineered and built in Modena, which is the first time in a long time. The most recent cars are all made in Gugliasco, in Turin. The SUV is made in the old Fiat plant in Lungato. From what I understand, the new MC20 is engineered in Modena and made in Modena. So I don't know where they're making the engine. I don't know all the complete details. I can't believe they're making that engine in Modena. I don't think so. They're not set up to do that. They might be. Could have done the engineering there because the last time I was there, they took us into the engineering department where they were making the engines. I couldn't believe that they actually took us in there and let us see this. That's unusual. It was very unusual. They were probably working on that MC20 engine. And there it was. It was on the dynos running and they were over there assembling and disassembling. We didn't know what it was, but I'll bet you that's what it was. That's a seriously high output V6. Yeah, very high output. <laughs> and it has some very innovative engineering aspects. It'll be interesting to see where Maserati goes with that as a kind of a springboard for their new generation of automobiles. Now they're going to be owned by Peugeot. But from what I understand, the majority of this new company, the Peugeot FCA company, the majority of the shares will be owned by FCA and controlled by the Agnelli family. The Agnelli, I'll call him the kid. John Elkin is going to be the chairman of the board of this new Peugeot Fiat Chrysler operation, which owns Alfa and Maserati. Well, we certainly love the cars. There is nothing more captivating than a great old Italian sports car. Whether it's a Ferrari or a Maserati or a Lamborghini or an Alfa or a Lancia, whatever it is, they're truly remarkable things and we're very lucky to have them. But who's designed the car? And, you know, for me, the design is important. And I see the coach builders all in transition right now. And I see great disruption taking place in the coach building field. Out of that disruption is you're going to find new, smaller, nimble companies with very brilliant guys running them and the big coach builders going away. Or the companies are bringing a lot of them in-house. Ferrari doesn't hire anybody anymore. They do it in-house. Maserati's in-house. Everybody's in-house now. Tal Design was purchased by Volkswagen, so it's more or less in-house. I don't know how long that's going to survive. I just don't know. There's just so much disruption going on. I think it's probably safe to say that the great luminaries of automotive design, the names that we've been talking about, whether it's uh, Scaliati or Gandini or Giugiaro or Michelotti, any of those individuals. Those names are going to go into the history books and you're going to see new names coming. You have to have innovators. The days of committee design, I think, they're gone forever. Pure design can happen from one mind. Then the committee will evolve it. Just when I think that we're not 
going to go to Gia. We used to go to Gia 20 years ago. Now we don't go to Gia, but there's another one you go to. You go to another guy. There's Umberto. There's another guy doing something. And then you go to these guys and they're doing something. It's like whack-a-mole. When this one goes down, two others pop up over here. Just when I think that my car guy tour is going to go like, what are we going to do? Then I go, there's always too many places to see and not enough time to see them. New guys pop up. What a great conversation, Frank. I really appreciate your time. There's so much more to talk about. So let's have you back on the show and we're going to talk about Italy and all the people and places you've discovered there. Thanks for joining us. Robert, thank you. It's been a pleasure talking about this stuff and sharing my experiences and I look forward to speaking to you again. Thanks to Frank Banderano for joining us today on Cars That Matter. Come back next time as we continue to talk about the passions that drive us and the passions we drive. This episode of Cars That Matter was hosted by Robert Ross, produced by Chris Porter, edited by Chris Porter, sound engineering by Michael Kennedy, theme song by Celeste and Eric Dick, additional music and sound by Chris Porter. Please like, subscribe, and share this podcast. I'm Robert Ross, and thanks for listening. Kurt Co. Media. Media for your mind.